Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We have to push more of our humanity. And by that, I mean our messy, liminal, gray area, mysterious sides to ourselves onto the internet. That's the only way to push back on what it does to us and what we become when we are in that space. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Humans crave certainty. In science and politics, in our lives and our leaders, in our decisions and our futures. But such is the paradoxical nature of our existence. We tend to thrive, like truly come alive and make our best choices and feel happiest when we venture into uncertainty. Now, you might have noticed the former tendency gets indulged in our culture. We get fed answers, we have search engines and voice assistants that don't leave us guessing or wondering or in doubt for an instant. We have leaders who increasingly talk in absolutes. We are delivered black and white scenarios with enemies already marked out for us. Now, you've heard me say this before, I'm sure. Technology today is geared wholly at eliminating the discomfort of our not knowing. We don't have to even wonder as to when our pizza will be delivered because we can follow its progress as an orb on our phones. Now, the implications of this cocooning from uncertainty in a world that is becoming more and more uncertain is profound and terrifying. The fragmentation, the bifurcation, the polarisation, these are all buzzwords now. They're just some of the repercussions. They are the effects of force-fitting certainty into the uncertainty. Now, the upshot is that intolerance to uncertainty is leaving us woefully ill-equipped to solve or perhaps heal is a better way of putting that, our way through the crises that we face. Now, I recently came across the work of author and journalist Maggie Jackson in this area. Maggie is a graduate of Yale University and the London School of Economics, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times and New Philosopher. Her book, Distracted, sparked a global conversation on the steep costs of fragmentation and alienation and won the 2020 Dorothy Lee Book Award for Outstanding Scholarship in the Ecology of Culture. Now, as in just last month, Maggie has published her new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. 
in which she makes the case for not knowing as an antidote to the dangerous complexities of our times. This is certainly a mission of mine at the moment, to seek out and flesh out approaches that can better serve us in a polarising, uncertain and complex world. And it's amazing how often it's just a matter of going in the opposite direction to where we're currently going. In this case, Maggie shares what is very, very recent science on how sitting in and embracing, as opposed to running from, the discomfort of uncertainty, so pausing, using hedge words, being honest about being ambivalent and so on, can see us grow, can see us innovate and find effective paths forward and ultimately, she says, save humanity. We cover off a bunch of philosophical positions and insights, but also pragmatic pushback hacks that we can, or rather must, employ to shift our world. This is the kind of wild chat that I think we love having here on Wild. As always, please post your comment and feedback over at Substack. That's sarahwilson.substack.com. I look forward to hearing what you think of this episode over there. But now, let's meet Maggie Jackson. Maggie, it's so wonderful to have you speaking to us all here on Wild. And look, I did read somewhere that you are an ocean swimmer, as am I. And I understand that your love of ocean swimming, it kind of stems from really the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today. Can you just talk us through how you came to be an ocean swimmer and why you love it so much? Sure. Well, I've always loved the ocean, but I was more of a sort of paddle around person and then really swim for exercise in a pool. But when the pools all closed during COVID and I actually moved to the countryside most of the time, I began pushing the envelope of the seasons and and swimming further and further into the fall and then into the winter and then getting a wetsuit. and, And I became just completely exhilarated and almost addicted to this more so than any form of sport or exercise I've ever done. I just had felt like I'd, I was so alive when I was doing this. And I kept wondering, what is it? You know, it, there's it's sociable. People swim with us and it's exercise. Yes, of course. And it's beautiful at dawn, etc. But then I finally began to realize that actually the fact that it was a daily dose of uncertainty was part of why I felt myself so profoundly strengthened by doing this kind of swimming. And, you know, you really just don't know what you're going to get every day, as you must know. And you don't know how the waves or the tides or the currents or the color, the color of the ocean will change when you get down there, despite, you know, you might have a, a surf app and you might have a great knowledge of that beach and lots of experience. Uh, but it is, it's a continual surprise. And that's actually, you're living at the edge and that illustrates what the positive wisdom of uncertainty yeah. right there. It's interesting. You use the word at the edge and that's very much what I guess has motivated me to be an ocean swimmer. I'm a terrible swimmer. I, I spend most of my energy just trying to stay afloat and I'm an, a liability, you know, out there to some extent. But also in Australian waters, there's always that risk of there being sharks. And I remember a friend um, said to me, Sarah, you are really looking for trouble, aren't you? And I think that's what drives me to do something like ocean swimming, but also to to hike. It's going to the edge. And you might be familiar with this sort of phrase from Pima Chodron, this idea of the edge is where you're meant to be. 
So if you're feeling at the edge, if you're feeling the discomfort of it, know that that is where you're meant to be right now. And I think it's not a dissimilar thesis to the one that you push or write about in your latest book. So let's get on to that thesis. You essentially, I guess, refer to the fact that we as a species have a tendency to cling to certainty. You know, we have this quest for certainty and we run from or we rather charge through uncertainty. It's like this idea of, all right, if we don't know something, push through it, find the answers, get to the other side, to the unknown as fast as possible. And I think we can probably see that it's a bit of a primal reflex, you know, the safety of the known. Would I be correct in saying that it has dialed up in in sort of recent times? The race to an answer, to leave the discomfort of not knowing has sped up. And I think in your book, you actually refer to the fact that Google starts typing out our answer (laughs) before we've even finished typing (laughs) in the question. There's a few little points there. Perhaps you you might want to even start by defining what uncertainty is and then move into why we've become a generation, a a species that's just really intolerant of it. Yes, no, exactly. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I heartily agree. And living at the edge, we'll come back to that because that's a huge part of being uncertain. So I will start with that definition because we often talk about the uncertainty or the headlines. So uncertainty roils the markets, etc. And for the most part, that is a shorthand for the unknown, for what we cannot know. So despite all of our mathematical modeling and you know capabilities and probabilistic theories, et cetera, we really don't know if the traffic jam will you know relieve itself soon or if the volcano will explode, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also another type of uncertainty. I mean, there really are two main kinds. And the second is our uncertainty. It's called epistemic uncertainty. It's the human response to the unknown. So it's actually by definition, the you know the, the moment when you recognize you've reached the limits of your knowledge. So you might have a product that's failing and your focus group isn't clear and you really just don't know. You're on the edge. It could be this way, it could be that way, etc. So I think that the you know our response to the unknown is one bucket and then you know the unknown itself. So yes, today there are many, many studies that show that volatility is rising. I mean, precarious work hours have become the norm. And the stock market, as we all know, it goes up and down like a roller coaster. Geopolitics, climate, weather patterns, wherever we turn, we're faced with rising unknowns. And at the same time, you know, we have to ask ourselves, so what will our response be? And for many, many years, particularly in Western society, we have pursued, almost with tunnel vision, certain answers. But that, that phrase you use, quest for certainty, comes from the philosopher John Dewey. And so we want answers. And humans used to see the sky, the stars in the sky is unchanging. They used to see the brain is unchanging. And now, of course, we realize that time and space are relative and the universe is expanding. And, and so there are so many unknowns. Well, we're at a crossroads moments, I would say. What are we going to do? And, you know, unfortunately, I see both an exciting hunger to understand uncertainty and its upsides, but very much a prevalent culture that still remains 
bent on or addicted to certainty seeking. And you mentioned technology. I mean, there are many, many reasons. I mean, the efficiency oriented capitalist economic systems are, are, you know, really bent on certainty. That's true in economics and business. And and then and then you have other sort of macro issues. But technology has really exacerbated, I would say, our idea. It's almost normalized the idea that certainty is attainable and certainty is what we should be operating on every single day. Yes, I think that that imperative of certainty very much comes from the advent of technology. And I, I write about this, Maggie, in one of my books, I think it's the more recent one, that 70 to 90% of all technology that's been developed in the last 30 years has not been geared at, I don't know, solving cancer or, or whatever it might be. It's really been geared at eliminating discomfort. So getting rid of the wait time, you know, eliminating this any kind of distress from not having an answer immediately, you know, shortcutting things, all of that kind of thing. And it's been about, I guess, swinging us from uncertainty, the uncertainty of the world as that uncertainty dials up. So it's really not equipping us for the world as it unfolds in 2024. And I find it really interesting. I think you wrote a piece in the New York Times that that I think got shared around the world. And you kick off at the top about, I think, a, a situation where you had not been invited to your friend's daughter's wedding and you didn't know why. And you just had to sit in the discomfort of of not knowing. And I think to this day, you don't know the reason why. And it really reminds me of what I think a lot of young people in particular are going through with friends, with dating, with a whole range of things where there's this imperative that we should know. And then we get kind of angry when we don't have an answer because the technology enables it. So, you know, we used to, you could probably cast your mind back to the dating situation when we were teenagers. I mean, if a guy didn't call you back, we kind of just accepted it or, you know, we might not hear from them. And our grandparents, for instance, they had to wait for, you know, carry a pigeon to deliver a letter <laughs> determining whether the guy liked them or not. Now, because the technology exists, there's this imperative that everything should be knowable, answered. We, we should have justifiable answers. Right. It's also just, it's not even just the aesthetics and the template oriented, the bullets, the PowerPoints, the look and feel of everything on the internet is geared toward neat pat answers that, as you mentioned, are, are instant. But it's also the behavior that that consciously or, or, or unconsciously kind of drives home. You know, for instance, studies show that even a brief time searching online, just Googling around actually leaves people thinking they know more than they do. Well, why is that wrong? Why is that bad? Basically, because if you don't recognize the limits of your knowledge, recognize when you don't know, you can't push forward and learn more and learn and grow. It's that edge work again. So the you know the the way we operate on the net, which has become sort of the predominant habit of our lives, that's the original question of my book. What does it mean to know? How are we changing what it means to know? And it, we're, we're reducing it. And what we're doing in a nutshell, you could say the space between question and answer is being shrunk to almost nothing. And what uncertainty does is expand this space between question and answer, even if just by a few minutes, 
to allow process to re-enter the equation rather than just slamming home uh, on outcome again and again and again, which is a business model, outcome-oriented meetings, outcome-oriented, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm arguing and the research really has begun to show, the new science of uncertainty has begun to show that so much is lost in thinking, creativity, curiosity, agility, exactly the kind of cognitive skills that we need in a world of volatility and flux is what we yes. gain with uncertainty. Yeah, you, you, I mean, let's, let's move into that because as you say, when you set out to write this book, you discovered that there was all this very new science emerging, which is wonderful when you set out to write a book <laughs> and you realize, wow, Absolutely. the world needs to know about this. And, and I've got scientists who've done some great work and it's ready to go. So let's talk through a few examples of the benefits of leaning into uncertainty, particularly in uncertain times. And you touched on a few there, but one in particular I really like that you referred to is the benefits of that pause. And you talk about forgetting and, you know, sort of your memory failing briefly, you know, and that wrestle, that pause where you have to wrestle to find the answer. Maybe you could use that as an example of of how I suppose being in that uncertain pause can actually produce wonderful results. Sure, yes, because there are two pillars of being uncertain. And one is the sort of spur, the kind of provocative, stress-oriented you know, response that we gain from being uncomfortable not knowing. And I'd love to talk a little bit further about that. But also this uncertainty is a space, a space for creating that, you know, that that space between question and answer. And so often, you know, in our culture and society, in fact, many, many times in my book, I was actually writing about liminal gray area spaces that are highly denigrated in our society. So for instance, forgetting, you know, you think that forgetting or pausing is just nothingness, a waste of time, something that should be eradicated. And, and the, the denigration of forgetting, I think, comes from analogies to as thinking as computer-like, which is actually outdated and and really does our brains an injustice. If you look at the science, it's really fascinating because you know forgetting and pausing are all about being uncertain. And so studies show that if someone pauses for just a few minutes after learning new information, their memory is boosted by 20% the brain is actually digesting what they were doing. Now, what's incredible is that this is true even of Alzheimer's. People with Alzheimer's actually gain these benefits as well as healthy adults. That's amazing. But it's more than just that. It's more than just implanting new information, coding, as they say, into memory. Actually pausing, resting, sleeping, you know, all of those sorts of nothingness moments in life are actually highly related to gaining insight and to abstracting information. Well, what does that mean? You Basically, your mind is taking a series of events or information and sort of extrapolating the overarching rules or the deeper insights that you cannot get at a glance. So if people are doing a, in a study, if people are learning a virtual town, the layout of virtual town, they're trying to understand the map and, you know, get to know the town. People who then rested for about 10 minutes after this learning, instead of turning right to another activity such as playing a video game, were much more likely to understand the town on a much deeper level. They came away with a kind of a sense of the town rather than just a 
veneer, a cursory understanding of how to get to A to B in that town. And that's true of so many different types of learning and knowledge. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's this idea of mulling, isn't it? And I know that when I learn something, what I really benefit from is then being able to turn around to somebody and talk about it. You know, so that's how I can imprint knowledge. And I think that's a type of pause, right? Like turning away from the computer or whatever it might be and and sort of wrestling with it. I use that word a lot because I think it is that that kind of struggle, that discomfort of kind of not quite getting the concepts, but really trying hard to, reaching into that unknown territory of being a little uncertain and 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 mucking around in it for a bit. Yeah, but I think it, I think that's two those are two different sort of Air arenas, and you're right. There, that is a certain type of wisdom. That's you know, a certain type of thinking that's strengthened by uncertainty. Absolutely, you know, uncertainty is a space for possibilities. And so, when you muff around or deliberate or examine your more than just one option, I mean, four fifths of business decisions makers just examine one option before making a decision. That sort of deliberative activity is a kind of uncertainty in action. Absolutely, but. I'm talking about that in terms of pausing or resting or napping or sleeping at a problem, actually doing nothing. It's not nothingness in that an incredible amount of activity is going on. And that's something I think also we are not really great at today is just loosening control, having faith in the mind, understanding that, you know, you're unconscious being will also be figuring out the problem in the absence of conscious goal-oriented thinking. Yeah, that's a very interesting distinction that you make there. So thanks for drawing that out a bit. I think you also look at sort of, I guess, ambivalence when people sort of say, well, I'm not sure, is it A or is it B? And you use the example of a study that was done on executives, I think it was in Germany, who were having to adjust to, well, Germany entering the EU. And I think the researchers went back and looked at the different types of executives, those that were kind of quite determined on what the outcome would be and how it would look, and then those who were like, I'm really not sure. Can you just talk about that role of ambivalence, particularly with leaders? Yes, and it's a it's a really I'm glad you brought that up because it's an incredible study, gold standard, award-winning, longitudinal, fantastic study. It was actually the expansion of the EU the membership doubled in, I think, 2009. And so two business school professors were studying the German CEOs specifically to see if, you know, whether or not it would be great to see this change as good or to come down on the side of it being detrimental. But they did not even expect, the research just didn't even expect there to be a third group in the mix. And those were a very substantial minority of CEOs who were ambivalent. They really didn't know, would it be bad? Would it be good? Would they lose customers, et cetera? And so a year later, when the researchers came back, they found to their utter shock that the CEOs who were ambivalent were actually more resourceful. So they tried different possibilities. They opened up a new factory or they just waded in, as we've been talking about, into the space of possibilities, but they were also more inclusive. And again, being uncertain gives you multiple perspectives because you're not 
sure of the way. So you're actually more able to see like spokes on the wheel where you could be going and you're not necessarily thinking you're A, in control of the situation and B, deciding it's X or Y. And as one of the professors, Klaus Weber at Northwestern told me, you know, after all, situations are not binary. That's a really important point. Yeah. And I think we've, we've brought up the notion of discomfort a couple of times because, of course, being in the unknown, not knowing the answer, being torn between a number of different options, it's really, really uncomfortable. And of course, that's why we flee from uncertainty and try to hang on to, you know, certitudes and, and leaders who, who claim to have, you know, a, a determined answer to things. And I'm thinking Trump, you know, in terms of what he offers to a lot of people in an uncertain world. But yeah, I think the discomfort piece is really important here, right? Like, and it ties into the anxiety in and around uncertainty that's very existential. But I, I kind of think that it's probably worth touching on this because I know that a lot of uncertainty tolerance is being done as a treatment for anxiety and a lot of it is to do with sitting in the discomfort for longer, right? Are you able to just talk to that a little bit? You know, this is just absolutely the most imp- one of the most important points we can understand about uncertainty. And I think this is, you brought up exactly the place where people's minds get upended or overturned their assumptions about uncertainty as being a bad thing. Now, so, so we'll, we'll walk through that a little bit. Why are we uncomfortable when we're uncertain? Well, naturally, we as organisms need and want answers. So therefore, we get a stress response. So when you meet something new, murky, ambiguous, etc., the unknown, you actually, your body and brain fire all cylinders. So your heart might beat or your palms might sweat. But at the same time, there are changes in the brain, which are actually recently discovered by neuroscientists studying learning in dynamic environments. And those changes in the brain are amazing. First of all, your focus widens, your working memory is expanded, your brain becomes more receptive to new data and sharing more actively information across different regions. So you you can really see that's why I think of uncertainty. The starting point, the first response is a kind of wakefulness. Yes. Now, as, as one neuroscientist told me, that's the moment when your brain is telling itself there's something to be learned here. And it's why scientists consider uncertainty a form of good stress. And what's really important also is that if you, for instance, see uncertainty as threatening, if you just don't want to even think of things being uncertain, you're more likely to retreat from the moment, which I consider an invitation to learn, that moment of wakefulness, that moment of, of vigilance, arousal, scientists say, is actually an invitation to learn. And again, we're, 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 as you can see, we're talking about being on the edge. Now, we all in different situations want to yearn for an answer when you're tired or when you feel under pressure. We tend to be to see uncertainty as more threatening and race to that answer and shut down. But we all have that kind of a personal zone of comfort with uncertainty. So there's a personality disposition related to this. You mentioned that word tolerance. That's actually a psychological measurement. Tolerance of uncertainty. People who are intolerant, who really don't like surprises, who tend to be rigid thinkers, who you know don't want things to be ambiguous. In fact, they just actually won't see something as ambiguous. Those people are intolerant of uncertainty. 
people who are tolerant of uncertainty actually like being surprised. They're more likely to be curious. They're more likely to visit a foreign country where they don't know the language or try a new dish. And so by actually targeting this tolerance, you know, it's mutable. And so scientists, psychologists are working with anxious people to try to bolster their tolerance for uncertainty. And they're finding this is, this is a very promising new treatment. In one study, people who had generalized anxiety disorder, which is often the most intractable, you know, complete anxieties, they actually, their worry levels fell to, in 12 weeks, fell to levels uh, in parallel with the general population and their anxiety levels fell and their mm. depression levels. Yeah. Psychologists are beginning to see this tolerance of uncertainty, intolerance rather, as a vulnerability factor for many, many mental disorders. Because basically, if you're afraid of the unknown, well, you're afraid of life. Yes. Yes. And I've said the same thing before, because life is full of unknowns. And so the greatest thing you can do for living with and thriving with your anxiety is to develop some sort of tolerance to the unknowns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One point that you do make in your book that I think picks up on things here is that uncertainty isn't the thing that actually sees us become paralyzed and then go into a death spiral of not being able to move and, you know, which is a, a distinct characteristic of being an anxious person. It's actually the fear of being in that uncertain space, the discomfort, you know, not being able to handle the discomfort of being in that uncertain place that causes the paralysis that then causes that doom spiral. And so the point that you're making here is if we can develop uncertainty tolerance, then we're in a much better position to deal with anxiety. And, and in fact, as you say, it's, it's used as a treatment for anxiety. And I want to come back to a little bit more of those techniques that you know people can use to develop that uncertainty tolerance. But one of the things in terms of those tests that look at whether somebody's got a high tolerance or a low tolerance for uncertainty, 
I think I read in your book that what they found is that those with a low tolerance generally see uncertainty as unfair. And then that's, you know, sort of generally plays out as blaming, being a victim, honking your horn when somebody cuts in on you in traffic, but also polarizing and blaming an enemy out there. And essentially, that's how the world is unfolding at the moment, more and more, particularly online. Those who can tolerate uncertainty and have, you know, maybe developed some great tolerance techniques see uncertainty as a challenge. And I think that that's sort of the opportunity there. And you spoke of curiosity, and I would love to pause on this notion of curiosity. There's been a number of studies that I've come across in my own work that show that curiosity levels have plummeted, so have innovation and fixated uncertainty. There's a real correlation there. You looked into curiosity, didn't you? And and I'd love, Maggie, for you Mm -hmm. to explain the role of curiosity and how important it is to being human. Oh yes, now that's a, a it's a it's a wonderful new again a new area of science and research and you know basically you know, curiosity can take all sorts of different forms whether it's searching you know uh, like a hound dog for a certain fact or just dabbling around and being curious about just everything in the world childlike but one thing that's really important is that a important component of curiosity is what researchers say is stress tolerance, but they don't mean just any old stress tolerance. They basically mean tolerating uncertainty or the stress of being in the unknown. And if you begin to think about it, you know, we often think of curiosity as, oh, kind of a picnic or something, you know, for a five-year-old and it's just gee whiz, et cetera. But there is this uncomfortable, stressful aspect of curiosity as well. You know, people who are more likely to, who are high on tolerating the stress of the unknown are actually more likely to be dissenters at work, which is a very important role, especially today. They're more likely to be engaged at work. They're more likely to, you know, read difficult books and unusual movies and et cetera. So I think that's a very, very, very important component of curiosity. And and yes, it's 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 really hard to be a curious person today because technology keeps us mired in what is familiar. It keeps pointing you back to what you already know. And of course, one of the things we've been talking about, both in the deliberative space, the surgeon in a crisis who has to engage with a novel problem and has to work through that, inhabit the question, I, t- I say it, or the inventive scientist or the artist who has to again, work in the space of possibilities, keep on the edge of the unknown, is they have to get beyond what they know. The the known is only a staging ground, a foundation for learning and for inventing and for expanding as a human being. And you can't really move forward unless you are able to get beyond what you know. And that's exactly what curiosity does. It's an awkward place to be. And I think it's really important also what you're talking about in terms of the personality disposition of tolerance or intolerance of uncertainty to underscore that it's a challenge for people who are tolerant for uncertainty. Everything I'm talking about is not easy street. And, And yes, we do need comfort and we need routine and we need the familiar and we want to go home at the end of the day and kick up our feet and maybe eat the same old spaghetti, et cetera. But if we really want to grow and thrive and move forward as a society, as humans, we have to 
not retreat from that edge, from the from the pioneering work yes. that uncertainty allows us to do. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, as we've touched on a couple of times already, we are moving in the opposite direction as the world really needs us to have that aliveness, as you talk about, that kind of coming online, that sort of awakefulness <laughs> that happens when you're in the unknown, but also the openness and compassion that comes from curiosity. I know there's been studies that look at how the openness in, I think it's the prefrontal cortex that comes about when we're curious, that is exactly the kind of openness that opens us up to discerning thought so that we can actually work our way through the complexities, the black swans, the unknown unknowns that we're being hit with at the moment in a completely uncertain world and a world that's becoming even more and more uncertain. So I would love to move on now, Maggie, to the implications of our rigid attachment to knowing, you know, to being sure. Because I think, you know, we've got a whole range of problems on our plate at the moment as we enter 2024. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's happening that stems from complexity. But really what I think the biggest issue that we face at the moment is our inability to handle the complexity. Because what it's seen us do is polarize, create an enemy out there, you know, in this kind of black and white us and them mentality. Mm-hmm. It's seen us needing to fix things rather than work through nuances. You know, it's seen us needing to eliminate ambiguities and also gaslighting minorities who put up their hand and go, actually, that black and white answer doesn't actually stack up for us. Algorithms as well are setting us into these silos, these concrete silos. So everything's becoming reductionist when we're unable to empathize and so on. But you've said that uncertainty tolerance could be an antidote to all of this. And you've written in your book, the types of thinking so urgently needed today, discernment, crisis problem solving, mutual understanding, productive dissent and more are made possible by skillfully not knowing. Now we've talked about a few of the benefits of not knowing, but I'm wondering if you can talk through specifically some of the skills that we need to cultivate to deal with where we're at today. Sure, yes. And I think that there are ways in which we can move toward greater tolerance of uncertainty and not be sort of thrown in at the deep end because I'll just talk a little bit about the so-called zone of proximal development. That is a term used in developmental psychology or child development. It's taken usually to, to indicate scaffolding. You know, the parent is able to reach in and help when the child is doing something that could be a little bit overwhelming, the zone of proximal development. But really, that's actually a term that's completely useful for adult life. You know, we need to remain at the zone of proximal development. As one scientist told me, that's where the green bud on the tree lies. That's where the growth lies. And I think that in terms of specific skills, there are so many that I write about and that I found that there are kind of levers, there are strengths. So for instance, there's a social side to uncertainty, as you were just talking about. You know, we, it's not just a solo act. It's not just a you know a thinking alone or creative or inventive alone. For instance, we need to combat polarization, and uncertainty is at the core of how we can do so. Because polarization starts with categorization, that unconscious instant you know, labeling that we make, whether someone's an in-group or out-group. 
And yet there are activists. I went canvassing in Los Angeles with LGBTQ activists who are using an uncertainty motif, a strategy built on uncertainty in order to lower bias. And there have been studies that show they're able to lower bias in an opposition voter in just a 10-minute conversation. It took them years to actually cultivate and create this strategy. Well, the basis of it is something called perspective taking. Now, that's our grandmother's wisdom. That's basically trying to take the perspective of someone whose politics you loathe or someone who is completely different from you. You actually you know, walk a mile in their shoes. You see what it's like to do this. And what's at the bottom of that? Well, basically, it's a leap of imagination. You are realizing that you don't know when you, when even if it's someone you love and cherish, you usually actually don't know what they're thinking and feeling each day. If you try to imagine what your sister or your hated neighbor are thinking and feeling, then basically you're being uncertain. You're jolting yourself from your assumptions. And that's the kind of perplexity that Socrates talked about as being absolutely important for not only dialogue, but for human growth. It, and, and, that, and the ripple effects are extraordinary. Uh, when people take the perspective of another, they're more likely to sit closer, to work with them as a teammate, et cetera, et cetera. So Maggie, maybe you could even just talk us through how these LGBTQ activists employed this technique to create the openness. Like they knocked on the door to a stranger who might have been resistant to their ideas. What did they actually do? Because I think understanding some of these techniques, I think we're all wanting to use better techniques for bringing ourselves closer to the rest of humanity. Right, exactly. And well, for instance, previously they had knocked on the door. It's a very unusual thing even to canvas at an opposition door, but they knocked on the door and tried to deliver a script and they stuck to their script and they tried to basically hammer the other person on the head with their so-called rightful opinions and the, and the facts, etc. But then when they finally, almost by accident, began to step back and listen to the other, to realize that the other person was a full-fledged human. So what you can, what, what's really important as part of perspective taking is, is seeing the person as an individual, actually deliberately ratcheting back that categorization. You know, you see a bumper sticker and you think, oh, they're, that's that kind of voter. Or you see someone, you know, skin color and you automatically think something. But this is a, you actually try to see them as an individual. That's Robert. That's not, you know, the guy down the street who believes X, Y, Z. And so that's a very important part of it. They were open, they listened, and they began to create the space for mutual learning was what happened. Because that's at the core of what I believe uncertainty can do for polarization. Basically, it allows us to have a mutual space for learning because when you can see the potential in another, not just their set in stone wrong, you actually then have that open-mindedness that you mentioned. You have to be able to see that perhaps I write in the book about a civil rights activist who actually made friends with the head of a Ku Klux Klan in uh, Durham, North Carolina in 1973. What she did was stick up for him when he was about to be attacked for a hateful exhibit of KKK paraphernalia. Now, you would think, why would she stick up for him? Well, she told the attackers, 
you shouldn't tear this down. You should try to see what makes him think the way he is, not to condone the wrong. Never, never to condone the wrong. We have a right to be angry. We have a right to keep fighting for what's right. But we also should be open to the fact that what's right may need to be changed a little or what's right. The other person, as Aristotle say, no one person holds all the answers, to paraphrase Aristotle. Everyone knows the little bit of truth of the world, as he said. And so I think it's really important to understand that uncertainty keeps the problem open. So it allows people to enable the other to have the potential to change and grow. If we constantly think, that the way to argue or the way to convert people or persuade people is to just you know, force them to accept our right, we will never move forward. But if you can be tolerant of uncertainty, then you might be able to allow that other person to change in your direction, or you might be able to actually be willing to accept the fact that you might be changed. Because as I say, uncertainty means it involves an incredible admission and an important admission. It's why I call it a form of honesty. Uh, uncertainty is actually the willingness to the, admit that life is unpredictable, dynamic, and imperfect, and so are we. And when you can do that, then you're really living. It's also a real relief. It's a relief when you can let go of that rigid attachment to I am right and having to hold that ground because it's it's not fun. That is such an important point that it's liberating. It's a relief. And in fact, in my own life, since writing this book, I've become more able to stay in the space of someone else's discomfort. For instance, if one of my daughters is upset, I, I would find myself in the past rushing in, trying to fix it, you know, trying to soothe the tears so quickly that we weren't investigating the problem together, or I wasn't allowing for their perspective because it was uncomfortable for me, and and that wasn't fair at all. Now I feel as though I'm able to stay in this space of discomfort with another to acknowledge it, but also to help them move on. Yeah, yeah. Maggie, it's interesting. I think ground zero on all of this, of course, is social media. And we're seeing this playing out with what's happening in the Middle East, but the climate crisis as well, these intractable spats, you know, that are happening in the DMs, in the comments sections, et cetera, et cetera. We just, it really is just the worst space for all of this. And I'm witnessing myself, the worst that it gets, I am finding myself having to find techniques that really speak to what you're talking about here really saying, I don't know, because it's, it's really the only option left when you realize that the back and forth polarization, screaming at each other stuff doesn't work. So I'm watching myself, you know, with all the stuff that's going on in Gaza, really finding myself starting sentences with, hmm, I'm wondering, or I'm really struggling with this. And so when I'm hit with kind of comments on social media, I find that when I start a sentence with, yeah, I'm really curious what you're thinking along these lines or, yeah, I'm really struggling with my position here and I find that that actually immediately creates a different atmosphere for a conversation. You are very proficient in the realm of digital. You've written books about it and you've written many, many articles and commentated on, on the role of technology and what's happening online. 
And in fact, I think this book started out as a book that was meant to be about how to communicate digitally. And it, it morphed, you know, such was your openness to, to not knowing, it morphed into a book about uncertainty. But I'm sure there'd be listeners out there wanting to know actual tangible techniques that perhaps you use to shift yourself into that space where you become a better operator with online dialogue. Sure. Well, I, I think I would heartily corroborate what you were just saying about starting off with, I don't know, etc. Those are called, if you use the words such as maybe or sometimes, those are called hinge words. And linguistically, they do two things. They signal that there's something more to know in this space, which is wonderful because that actually, as, as Philip Tetlock, the great futurist says, flushes out the ignorance and allows us to be on the edge of what we know together. I think that's really, really important. And they're not actually seen as in the business world, for instance, as, as all weakness, et cetera. That's kind of a mythology. So hedge words are very, very important. And the second thing they do is that they indicate that they, you are receptive to another's perspective, which is exactly what you were saying. And, and there have been studies that show that executives who use them are seen as better professionals and, and more likely to be a, a great collaborator, et cetera. So we can import that kind of learning and and being into the internet, which is really, really important. We have to basically, I think, push more of our humanity. And by that, I mean our messy, liminal, gray area, mysterious sides to ourselves onto the internet. That's the only way to push back on what it does to us and what we become when we are in that space. I think the other thing to do, I would say, is to take the pauses, to slow down. 75% of everything that's posted online is not read. Only the headline or a first few words is read before being reposted. So that's, that's incredibly chilling. People just are making fast, instant snap judgments all the time. So whenever I post online, I make sure to basically read it take care. Sometimes I even write it in a Word document separately and then copy and paste into LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever. So I'm not just firing it off. I, I try never to feel pressure to react. I only try to respond. And that means I read it through multiple times. I So I actually don't post as much as many people do, but I'm mostly happy with what I do post because I'm I try to be careful and that's actually that that kind of mode of operating has been proven by scientists to actually undercut misinformation so when people take a moment's pause they are actually less prone to share in misinformation and also to fall prey to it so if we bring our more thoughtful uncertain selves into this space which is not geared for complexity. It's not geared for slower types of thinking or for deliberation, et cetera, or even for creativity. We can actually be shaping the technology to be more complete in the humanity, mm. which is which is incredibly important. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. I think we all have a responsibility to have our sleeves rolled up and engage in, in this creation of the antidote. You know, we need to steer things to, I guess, a more conversive, 
kind world because if we continue down this polarization route we will spell our own destruction i mean that's that's how it goes and i i see it as a responsibility and i think these techniques are something we need to rise to i mean one sort of piece here that i think that remains is almost a tolerance of and encouragement of leaders who practice this kind of behavior unfortunately we live in a world where leaders who do pause Leaders who do say, listen, I'm not sure about that. I'm still thinking it through. Leaders who don't just fire off at three in the morning, they're considered weak. We still live in a society where that is the case. But we do need to encourage this more discerning, kind, unknowing in our leadership. So how can we go about that? Because I know there's been studies that have looked at this, how we see it as weakness. But in fact, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? leaders who can pause and think for a moment, they actually produce better results. So how can we change our perception of that and encourage the masses around us on social media to to be more tolerant of this kind of thing? Because we need it. We're not going to survive without leaders who can be more discerning. Oh, exactly. We have to encourage doctors who say, I don't know. We have to encourage political leaders who, you know, can change their mind without being voted out of office. We have to encourage business leaders, particularly those who caretaking for the environment, to be able to pause in front of a new complex problem, which as you say, is now seen as being less influential. I'm really heartened by the fact that there is a tremendous hunger from many, many people at the top in, you know, my work on uncertainty. I'm very, very heartened. But yes, there's still a great deal that we all can do to change the the, the fabric, the culture, etc. It starts with perhaps thinking of uncertainty as not being monolithic. I mean, we often think of it, and I did before I started really getting into the weeds of this book, as something that was sort of this gray fog, you know, synonymous with inertia, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if we begin to have a vocabulary related to uncertainty, if we begin to understand that, oh, the surgeon who's deliberating is uncertain. Oh, the creator who is sleeping in a problem, they're uncertain. The child who is daydreaming is not goofing off. They're actually doing essential work for their mind and for creativity. So I think if we begin to see uncertainty all around us and opportunities, we actually expand what it means to know and we we begin to harness that frontier of not knowing. And so therefore, on a more practical granular level, if you're a manager, it's really important to not, you know, you might not wave the flag of I'm uncertain, but you might actually use a hedge word or you might say sometimes it could be another way or you could say let's keep this problem open for a day. That's that's pretty innocuous language. So there are very small measures we could do. Uh, there's a, there was a program in Maine in the United States to teach young doctors a pilot study to boost their intolerance of uncertainty by teaching them simple things like saying, I don't know to a patient, I'll have to look that up. And actually what the doctors told me was that it gave them courage, courage, because they realized they could think and rethink and face the problem in deep, nuanced ways. And to share that with a patient shouldn't be shameful. No, it actually suggests an intimacy that you've been treated on a case-by-case basis. You know, the person is really, really invested in your welfare because they're, they're, they're digging deeper. They go into an edge with you. Yeah. So we can all change the mix. We can all change the culture. Mm, and I think that's how the shift is going to happen. I think when we see people operating with certitude with 
lack of certainty, then I think that will start to really change the dynamics and we're going to have to do that. I think we do need, there's a responsibility that we all have to encourage it in others, to applaud it, to single it out as an example of something that comes as a relief. I think it's very, very telling. You point to this in your book that AI developers are now starting to build uncertainty awareness into AI. You know, these I don't know robots, right? You know, it's seen as a strength, as a, as a thing that we should be applauding and and working with rather than working against. Can I ask one last question before we wrap things up, Maggie? Books always change me. I generally see them as as a way for me to wrestle through a quandary that I have at a personal level and I come out the other end a completely different person. Has this book shifted you? I think we all wrestle with the paradoxes of certainty. On the one hand, we really want to grip at it. On the other, we we want to flirt with it, like take up ocean swimming, you know, and, and, and go to an edge because we know it's playful and we know that it brings about that aliveness, that onlineness that you talk about. How has it shifted you? I have my introverted side, but I'm very much an extrovert. And at the same time, I've taken a lot of risks in life, both, you know, in my journalism and my work and my creating, you know, et cetera. I live at the edge, but at the same time, this is this has helped me push toward an entirely new level of, you know, living life improvisationally. It does not actually remove the problems of life, but I feel as though I'm much more capable of taking what comes. And then that allows me to be more present in the moment. I think it's very easy for us to be outcome oriented. Is this speech going to fail? Or is this article going to do what I want it to do, et cetera? Well, rather, certainty allows you to actually wallow and wade into the, the beautiful possibilities that are present in life. And then as frustrating as it can be, work through them. It's basically expanded my capacity to be improvisational, to be playful, to move into particularly difficult, high stakes contexts, whether it's disagreeing with someone or being rejected by a friend or giving a big, big speech, etc., with a lot more openness to what might come. That doesn't mean I don't prepare. It doesn't mean I'm not in control of the situation as much as I can be, but I don't expect the world to be predictable. And now I really relish that. What will I learn? What will I learn? It's really changed me. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear that. And it's really lovely and inspiring to hear you describe it in that way. It's a very good sales technique for the whole premise of your book. So Maggie, I very much appreciate this conversation. It's enlivened me and hopefully it'll encourage others to start practicing some of these techniques and also feeling that responsibility to shift things away from a very fast polarizing world. It's, it, I think it is a really important part of this puzzle. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I completely agree. I really think our lives and our society is at stake and uncertainty really can save humanity. It's actually super interesting, the anecdote that Maggie uses to open her book, Uncertain. It's the story of how Martin Luther King Jr. came to deliver his now infamous speech at the 1963 March on Washington. As it turns out, the night before, he actually didn't have a speech. He didn't know what he was going to say. And he had all these different stakeholder interests playing at him. 
So he worked through the night on the speech and he, he orchestrated this, this speech that he was going to give. But literally minutes before he was due to deliver it, he gave it away. He abandoned the whole thing and he decided to free fall, to ad lib in the moment. And he gave a speech, of course, as we know now, that inspired a world and several generations. But it was a speech, she points out, that was one filled with what she calls these hedge words. It was all about nuanced possibility and maybes. It was a vision. And I think it makes her point wonderfully that we come online, we come alive when we live on and we get invited to that edge, that uncomfortable place of non-rigid answers and fixes, of uncertainties and, and a free-falling. When we lean into uncertainty and unknowns, we can thrive. We can thrive with anxiety. We can solve problems better. We can lead teams more effectively and more lovingly. We access kindness and compassion and we produce a better world, a better us. I recommend you read Maggie's book, Uncertain, which has come out in the US, the UK, and certainly Australia in the last month or so. It's actually an exercise in exactly what her thesis points to. It's a lovely, loose, explorative, curious read. But from this conversation, I guess there were a few takeaways, and I'm happy to reiterate them here with you. They're techniques that see us lean into uncertainty and play a part in the antidote to the polarization that she speaks of. Okay, so the first one, read the messages, read the links before forwarding them when you do so on social media. Only one in five, as she says, links are actually opened before they're forwarded, which is absolutely frightening. So read, pause, think, craft a wonderfully nuanced response and then press send. She suggests that we pause in general after learning something. So lie down, go for a walk, stare at the ceiling. And I think she, she suggests six to 10 minutes seems to be the sweet spot for this, this liminal space where we can best then absorb knowledge and take it into our being. She also suggests using hedge words, words like maybe, or I'm wondering, or I'm curious, I'm not sure. Apart from linguistically signaling that there's something to explore to another person, I think it also disarms the other people in your orbit into their own humanity and probably disarms yourself into your own humanity. I certainly find that that's the case when I use those kinds of words. Now, if you're a leader, you could benefit from having a listening ritual after meetings, genuinely inviting questions and concerns and, and getting everybody to listen to each other. And for the rest of us, she suggests that we champion the leaders who do lean into uncertainty. So, you know, supporting the Instagrammers, the politicians who work to this language and mindset, point it out and applaud it. Like we need to shift the mindset on this. And then finally, try something that takes you to your edge. It might be ocean swimming. It might be going to a movie on your own. That's what uncertainty tolerance looks like. Okay, everyone, stay wild and please share, subscribe, comment on Substack. That's sarahwilson.substack.com on all the things. And I'll see you next week.